We're uh, winding down our study of biblical separation and we are uh, concluding the study by four considerations that we need to think about uh, that kind of wrap this study up. The first one is that uh, there are certain things from which every believer is expected to separate himself or herself. Uh, things in the Bible that are classified as sinful, things in the Bible that are classified as evil are things that uh, separation uh, needs to be made, and that's an individual responsibility for a believer. Those things are clearly uh, stated in Scripture, and I think it's imperative that we base our separation decisions on what is biblically written. And usually that is not the case. Most people form their convictions not on the things written in Scripture, but on things they perhaps have learned or the things their opinions, and then they make them equal with Scripture, and that's wrong. Uh, we want to base our decisions on what the Word of God actually does say. Secondly, we said there are times when leadership must make separatist decisions based on the purity or to protect the purity of the church. Um, and uh, I've always believed that the first uh, responsibility of church discipline is not restoration, it's the purity of the church. Uh, and then if someone repents, then you move toward restoration, of course, but uh, that has to be done at times. Now, the third consideration tonight, and before we get into this, let's pray. Father, thank you for your word and your people here tonight. We pray your blessing on this time. In Jesus' name, amen. The third consideration is there are times when uh, separations must be made and leadership must kind of guide that in order to protect the flock. Uh, I want you to go to Acts chapter 20. Acts chapter 20, verses 28 to 30. The Apostle Paul calls the Ephesian elders uh, together, and he says in Acts 20 and verse 28, Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves men will arise, speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. Sooner or later uh, in church life, uh, a pastor and the leaders will be forced to answer a question of separation that is uh, affecting the flock. And sometimes those decisions are very clear-cut, and sometimes they're relatively easy, although they're never fun or enjoyable. But other times, they are not so clear-cut, and then they can become somewhat difficult. And in determining whether or not some connection to others will harm the majority, uh, leaders have to think through a variety of principles. And uh, one of the great illustrations that was given by Mr. Miles in his book, The Tightrope of Separation, comes from the book of Nehemiah. And uh, he said, God gave a book in the Old Testament to picture separation, and it is the book of Nehemiah. We perhaps have asked, why did God put such an emphasis on a wall? It is because God is picturing something to us in the Old Testament, which becomes a pattern for separation throughout the Word of God. There were some enemies of Israel, Sanballat, Tobiah, and Geshem. They hated those walls. They did everything possibly they could to stop the building of those walls because those walls separated Israel from the heathen. 
They didn't want separation. They wanted the plan of Satan, and the plan of Satan was, let's put all the people together. They wanted amalgamation, infiltration. They hated separation because separation spoke to them of their sin. They, they, uh, they wanted to be part of the people of God without actually meeting God's conditions. So Nehemiah says with boldness, you have no portion nor right nor memorial in Jerusalem. You don't have anything to do with Jerusalem or with us. And those were very strong words. Sanballat and Tobiah tried to laugh Nehemiah to scorn. They tried to ridicule him uh, into non-existence. And when that didn't work, they accused Nehemiah of disloyalty to the king. And they made angry threats against him. We're going to come with spears and with swords. We're going to stop the building of this wall. But the wall went right on. Then after the wall was built and Israel was a separated people, Nehemiah went back to the land of Babylon for a short time, and when he returned to Jerusalem, he discovered the people were so degenerated in their relationship with God that they had built Tobiah a room right in the temple inside Jerusalem. They put the enemy of God in God's temple. Nehemiah exploded with righteous wrath and indignation and expelled him from the temple, cleansed the room, and took those people to task because they lost their separated position. This is the lesson, the book of Nehemiah, and the lesson of the entire word of God. We can thank God that Nehemiah held his ground, uh, thank God for godly leadership. Most of the people couldn't even see the danger. Uh, of Tobiah and Sanballat and Geshem. They couldn't see the fact that they were trying to infiltrate and they didn't see that they had a lot of behind-scenes communications with people. They were writing letters and communicating, but in the end, the leader took a right stand and in the end, the people stood for what was right and God was honored and God blessed Israel. I think one of the things you want to see from Nehemiah that's critical, and if you'd go to Nehemiah chapter 8, I think this is always something that is so important in Nehemiah's day, uh, and it's so important to our day, and that is uh, Nehemiah uh, was totally focused on the written word of God. That's where he made separatist decisions, and that's where he uh, accomplished the will of God. When you go to Nehemiah chapter 8, and all the people gathered as one man at the square which was in front of the water gate, they asked Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had given to Israel. Then Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly of men, women, and all who could listen with understanding on the first day of the seventh month. And he read from it before the square, which was in front of the water gate from early morning until midday. Then drop down to verse 13. Then on the uh, second day, the heads of the fathers, households of all the people, the priests and the Levites were gathered together, Ezra the scribe, uh, that they might gain insight into the words of the law. So you see a group of people that were focused on understanding the written word of God. They wanted to hear the written word of God. They wanted to understand the written word of God. And out of that came the type of separation that uh, God honored and God blessed. So leadership at times must take a stand that there must be some separation made from something or someone, especially when they know this can really harm a flock. This can damage our people. This can damage the flock. And this point, I don't think, has really ever been called into question by those who are biblically-minded people. The point of controversy, as I see it, comes from the most part for uh, separation decisions that are made on matters not specifically stated in the scriptures. That's where the problem comes. 
If you're taking a biblical stand, it seems to me the people of God, for the most part, are willing to accept that and rally behind it, most people. But if you're just making up stuff and uh, you're setting forth your opinions about things and they aren't even biblical, that's where trouble comes in. Some have concluded that it is the judiciary responsibility of leadership to actually catalog a list of things that aren't even mentioned in Scripture that the Bible doesn't specifically address and say, okay, these are things that you shouldn't do or you shouldn't touch. And others have concluded it is not the judiciary responsibility of leadership to make separatist decisions on indifferent things. Uh, some believe that leadership should compile a list of things not named in Scripture and hand the list out and say to people there, don't do this and don't go here and don't be involved in this because we think it's wrong. And others say, no, you shouldn't do that because what you're doing then is you're actually stifling the ministry of the Spirit of God and the Spirit of God who saves individuals gives each individual a, a, a freedom to develop in his or her walk, walk with the Lord. Uh, J. Oliver Buswell, in his uh, Systematic Theology, cites an interesting uh, illustration I thought is interesting uh, for this very point. A church in China made a rule that the use of opium by church members was wrong. That was the rule that they made in the church. If you were in this church, you could not use opium. The leadership was motivated by probably good motives. They were motivated by the danger in the culture and with the desire not to see its membership become addicted to dangerous drugs. So as a result, the leaders made this mandate for church membership. Now the assumption of the mandate is that unless they have a judiciary rule concerning opium, some of the church members will use opium because it's legal in China. It also uh, assumes that this rule will cause some of the church members to abstain from the use of opium because it's a, an ecclesiastical regulation. So you have a group of leaders who've come up with a rule, not in the Bible, but they've come up with a rule, and the rule is you can't use opium, be a member of this church in China, uh, and, and their thinking is opium is a drug and it can hurt people, and it does hurt people. There's no question about that. And even though it's legal in society, you can't be a member of the church and use opium. Well, when you come up with something like that, you come up with three major problems. First of all, there are times when in China, opium would not be wrong to use. For example, there are medicinal uses and purposes that are very legitimate as a medicine. If you give a mandate to a church member that says, here's our law, you can't ever use opium, what happens if that church member is faced with a decision, I need that to help me get well? Now you're faced with a crisis. Do I obey the church leadership? Do I disobey the church leadership? Or do I seek the help of a doctor? Now I know a, a faithful man of God who loved Jesus Christ and his word, and he had some kidney issues, and the doctor advised him, drink a beer every day. The problem was this man was in a church that had a rule about that. And the rule was that you could not drink any alcoholic beverage. So this man was faced with a real problem. Do you disobey church leadership that came up with a rule and handed out the rule? Or do you, for your health, obey the recommendation of a doctor? Well, this person that I know of went right to the pastor and he called it straight out. And the pastor agreed that if he would drive several miles to a place where he could get his beer, no one else in the church would know it and it would be okay. Um, 
By the way, just a side note, for those that were out helping me with my hay, that beer can <laughs> that was in my barn was not mine. It was in my field. Somebody threw it out there. I picked it up and put it in the barn. I just want to clear that up right there. But in any case, this is exactly what the man did. In my view, this matter is biblically addressed in 1 Timothy 5.23. So let's go to 1 Timothy 5.23. I think you have a biblical principle right here. You don't need a rule. In 1 Timothy 5.23, Paul says, No longer drink water exclusively, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. It seems to me the leadership could have just stuck with the scriptures. And the leadership should have said, you know what? If that's what the doctor says will help flush your kidney out, then drink your beer. Why make a big deal of it? I mean, it's there in the word of God. You have a principle that already covers the issue. And, and so rather than invent a non-biblical uh, rule, which could actually harm your flock. Uh, now, certainly drunkenness is a sin. But total abstinence should not be mandated as a rule of the church. And this is exactly what this church had done. It had come up with a rule and it put this man in a quagmire because he has a doctor saying, look, you need this for your health. You need to be doing this or you're going to have problems. So there's your problem. There's your first problem with a rule. Secondly, whenever church leaders make rules not found in scriptures, they're adding to scripture. And I have a real hard time with that. And I'll tell you why. Because when you read a book like Revelation 22... It warns against adding things to Scripture. It would seem to me, when you're a leader of a church, you're best off to say, you know what, we're going to stick with the Bible. When the Bible says something's wrong, we're going to stand on that. If the Bible doesn't say it's wrong, we're not going to invent things that aren't there in the Scriptures. Uh, I've known many people, frankly, who know a lot more about their church rules than they'll ever know about the written Word of God. That's a disgrace. What they really ought to be knowing is the written Word of God, and they know more about church uh, dogma and church rules than they ever have the scriptures. And that's a tragedy because we must be after understanding the word of God. Thirdly, every believer is indwelt by the Holy Spirit who is God. So the Spirit of God moves a true child of God in a direction of holiness and no man-made law can accomplish that. There's no way you and I can dictate holiness to another believer. It isn't going to work. The Spirit of God has to do that. And in my view, law, or when you make up rules, you downplay a dependency on the Spirit of God. You downplay a blossoming in one's spiritual life because you've, you've boiled it down to, to, to rules. And, and that's not right. So I don't think leaders have any right to just start living and issuing rules that are not in the Scriptures because it causes people to just walk by rules rather than by an actual close, intimate relationship and dependency on the Spirit of God. Now, we would certainly agree that there are times when church leaders must make a separatist decision. For example, if there were a so-called brother and he becomes idolatrous or he becomes immoral, he crosses the line that, uh, that the leaders must say, we've got to separate, then they're called to protect the flock. The leaders have a job, get the leaven out, so the whole church is not leaven. That is the responsibility of leaders. It's not a fun job, I can tell you that, but it's a job at times that has to be done. When those things have to be done, they need to be done very prayerfully and very carefully. I think there needs to be a very careful analysis of Scripture to make sure that you are seeing it accurately in light of what the Scripture actually says because you don't want to just go by opinions and things. You want to go by what the Word of God says. And when you stand on the Word of God, God honors that. Now, probably 
one of the most famous cases of separation or illustrations of the complexity of the matter of separation comes from the ministry of Billy Graham. And the point of my illustration is just to give you uh, what people have to wrestle with in this whole matter of do we separate from this, do we not separate from that. Um, Some churches uh, and ministries are totally supportive of Billy Graham and others are not. So we think it's a good illustration to tackle because it gives you the ability to think through uh, some of the logistics of what has gone on uh, in this context. Billy Graham came to faith in Jesus Christ in 1934 at an evangelistic meeting. He graduated from Wheaton College in 1943 and he married Ruth Bell, daughter of a missionary in China. He became a well-known evangelist speaker for Youth for Christ. In 1947, William B. Riley asked Billy Graham to succeed him as the president of Northwestern College in Minneapolis. It's a small Christian school, but he soon realized he wasn't cut out to be the president of a theological institution, but he was cut out to be an evangelist. In 1949, he rose to national prominence when he held a series of evangelistic meetings in Los Angeles. In 1950, he brought together a talented team to form the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association, and he started a radio ministry that he called the Hour of Decision. Then in 1952, he resigned as school president to devote himself to full-time evangelistic rallies in major cities. Now, at this point, it appears that most fundamental churches were behind him. At this point in his history, it appears that almost all churches that we would say are fundamental churches were supportive of him, but about five years into his evangelistic crusades, he started to make some compromises that, uh, that were made with liberals that started to really trouble some people that understood the Word of God. For example, in 1957... At a New York crusade, he put on his crusade committee Henry P. Van Dusen, who was president of Union Theological Seminary, who had written a book on the vindication of liberal theology. In 1958, at a San Francisco crusade, he named as his co-chairman Carl Howey, a leading liberal who, in his book The Old Testament Story, attacked creation, the flood, and the miracles of Elisha. In 1961, he attended as a friend the New Delhi meeting of the World Council of Churches. This organization had been known to sanction witchcraft in the church. In 1963, at a Los Angeles crusade, the noted liberal Methodist Bishop Gerald Kennedy was involved as one of his leaders. In 1966, Billy Graham addressed the National Council of Churches in Miami, and he actually praised verbally some of the liberal ministers and he didn't rebuke any of the false teachers who were sitting right in front of him. In 1968, at Belmont Abbey, Billy accepted an honorary doctorate from a Catholic institution in Belmont and was the main speaker at the Institute for Ecumenical Dialogue. In 1969, the U.S. Congress on Evangelism met in Minneapolis, sponsored by Billy Graham. The event featured rock music and an address by civil rights leader Ralph Abernathy, a morning devotion was given by a Roman priest. In 1971, a Roman Catholic priest participated in a crusade in Oakland. In 1973, Billy Graham described that he had, it had been a beautiful experience to him to participate at a funeral mass. Now, what do you do with that if you're leaders of a church? See, the, the, the big problem here 
is summed up well by Dr. Ernest Pickering. He said, The problem of a Billy Graham is perhaps the toughest one that contemporary separatists have had to face. He's personable. He preaches the old message, you must be born again. His ministry has touched millions and continues to do so. Many have been saved through his preaching. The average believer hearing him on the radio or seeing his TV programs only knows there's a stirring call to sinners to receive Christ. Why then are some preachers for him and others upset with him? Is he not a good man? Does he not preach Christ? Those are natural reactions. And to criticize a wonderful person like Billy Graham is like criticizing motherhood, the flag, and country, or even the Lord himself. But here's Pickering's point that is so powerful. The issue is not Billy Graham. The issue is far deeper and more far-reaching than merely a person. The issue is a scriptural issue. It is not a question of whether or not we like Billy Graham. It's a question of whether or not the philosophy of Christian work, which he represents, is a biblical one. It is not a debate over the merits of a particular preacher. It's a debate over the teaching of the Bible regarding separation from evil doctrine. Now, in the very unique case, and I don't typically go to all the trouble to research all of these things for you on a person, but I think this is such a valid illustration to think through when you're talking about biblical separation. Uh, this is why we've gone to the uh, trouble to do all this for you. People have responded to support him based on the fact that evangelism is aimed at all kinds of people. And that's usually the argument that churches that got behind him used. Well, evangelism's aimed at all kinds of people, so yeah, he's got these doctrinal problems and these issues here, but because he's evangelizing the world and all kinds of people, then we'll support him. And typically the arguments of support are this, he's winning souls, therefore we should not judge or criticize him. But Dr. Pickering does not agree with this argument, and he cites 2 Samuel 6, 1-11 as an example. Let's go there, 2 Samuel. Second Samuel 6, 1-11. Here's what you read. Now David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. And David arose and went with all the people who were with him to Baal el Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name and the very name of the Lord of the host, who is enthroned above the cherubim. And they placed the ark of God on a new cart, that they might bring it from the house of Abinadab, which was on hill on the hill, and Uzziah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab were leading the new cart. So they brought it with the ark of God from the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill, and Ahio was walking ahead of the ark. Meanwhile, David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with all kinds of instruments made of fir wood with the lyres, harps, tambourines, castanets, and cymbals. But when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah reached out toward the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen nearly upset it. And the anger of the Lord burned against Uzzah, and God struck him down there for his irreverence, and he died there by the ark of God. And David became angry because of the Lord's outburst against Uzzah, and that place is called Peretz Uzzah to this day. 
So David was afraid of the Lord on that day, afraid of the Lord that day, and he said, how can the ark of the Lord uh, come to me? And David was unwilling to move the ark of the Lord into the city of David with him, but David took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. Thus the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, three months, and the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his threshold. Now, Dr. Pickering said, this is a good example of a man who was struck dead by doing God's work the wrong way. By doing God's work according to the way you think it ought to be done. And when it comes to the work of the Lord, the end does not justify the means. Uh, another uh, important point to note is that our first responsibility as a Christian, I don't believe, is to win souls. The first responsibility as a Christian is to do the will of God. Obviously, one part of that will be to share the gospel and witness to other people. But above this responsibility, we have the primary responsibility of obeying the word of God. As long as we're open to 2 Samuel, go back to 1 Samuel 15. 1 Samuel 15. Look at verse 22, 1 Samuel 15, 22. And Samuel said, Has the Lord as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed than the fat of rams. God says, I'll tell you what I look for. I look for people who obey my word. People that understand my written word and people who obey my written word. That's what I'm looking for. So the only reliable measuring stick that we have, is this right, is this wrong, should we separate, should we associate, is the written word of God. So the question would come, should we support someone who is involved with others who are known heretics? What would the scriptures teach us? What would the Bible want us to do? Should we support someone who is actually promoting an ecumenical philosophy and actually is involved with known heretics. That's what the issue is here. What does the Bible say? Now, the second argument is that he obtains a wider audience to hear the gospel by inviting these heretical liberals to participate with him. Others will say, well, we know he's got these heretics on stage, and we know he invites them to sit up there, and he puts them on his committee and everything, but, but because he has them there, and he's asked them to participate with him, then really he gets a good opportunity to have a wider audience because the heretics are more likely to have their people come because they're up there with him. Well, again, when you say, what does the scripture say on this? Does the scripture say that's what we ought to do? Well, when you come to Psalm 1-1, it says, Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly. Furthermore, it would seem to me from a passage like Romans 16-17, and let's go there, Romans 16-17. I don't know how you get around this myself. Romans 16, 17, which says, Now I urge you, brethren, keep your eye on those who cause dissensions and hindrances contrary to the teaching which you learn and turn away from them. It says that we should avoid those that are not really sticking to sound doctrine or, or to true teaching. We should, we should stay away from those kinds of people. Look, we, th we make a major mistake when we think that our humanistic tactics will accomplish the will of God. God is perfectly capable of accomplishing his will, his way. What he looks for are people that will obey his word. 
And people who obey his word will see God do many, many things in life. As Pickering said, we must enlist the puny effort, must we enlist the puny efforts and blessings of the vessels of clay and apostate ones at that in order to ensure the success of an evangelistic crusade? Does the omnipotent God need the help of unsaved preachers to gather for himself a crowd so that his saving gospel may be heard? Surely the answer to this is self-evident. Now, the reason I have cited and gone to great trouble to lay this whole illustration out is I want you just to think through the complexity of what it would be if all of a sudden in the church the church is asked to support Billy Graham. Now I'm not going to tell you what to do. You make up your own mind. Go pray about it. Take the word of God and do whatever you want to do. You're individuals. You have a life and you can go out there and do whatever you want to do led by the Spirit of God. But make sure it's consistent with the word when you do it. That's all I would say. But when it comes to the church, the church gets behind this. Now you've got a problem. Because now it's, now it's not just about what you're doing out there in your house or what you're doing there. It's now what are we going to promote as a church? What are we going to stand behind as a church? Are, are we, are we going to do this? And the leaders now become faced with a, a complex issue. Because leaders who are thinking about this, they're going, man, we've got doctrinal issues here that clearly are spelled out in the Word of God. So we, we've, got, we've got this issue where he is associating with this individual who's a known heretic, who blasphemes Scripture and blasphemes God. How can we as a church promote that our flock would get behind that? You see what you wrestle with when you're in a leadership capacity? And that's why biblical separation is not a simple thing. It's a very complicated thing. Uh, there needs to be a careful analysis of the Word of God, and there needs to be much prayer in, in a decision of separation. All right, our time is long gone. Do you have any questions or comments about uh, what we've covered here tonight?